If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. Speaking of the city, uh, good news is they have reached a, the city workers uh, have reached a tentative deal with the city. uh, So you don't have to go dumping your garbage on City Hall. Huh? No, I wasn't going to say that at all. Just kidding. Uh, but the good news is over the weekend, um, they have uh, at least come to a tentative agreement. We'll see what happens moving forward. But good news, uh, at least services uh, continue uh, this week. What else we got? Oh, the mayors, uh, the mayors and little, uh, leaders, municipal leaders are meeting with the, prime, uh, the premier and ministers uh, today talking about housing and finance. The uh, premier announced $1.2 billion a part of a fund that if uh, municipalities hit their housing targets by 80% or even 100%, they'll get uh, they'll get bonuses, they'll get more dough. So really, uh, the push is to obviously build more houses because for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, we, have, um, we have neglected to do so. And it was funny, I was watching the news the other day and somebody said, you know, we can't, uh, we can't let the province tell us what to do and we can't be blaming everybody for how we, well, those that are saying no blame, uh, then those are the ones that are probably holding it up for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. Uh, NIMBYism on one side, uh, extreme envi- environmentalism on the other. Urban sprawl is bad. Urban sprawl, building, bad, bad. Uh, and I guess bringing in half a million immigrants is bad. 1.2, including students this year, bad. Uh, we got to give them a place to live. And uh, will mistakes be made? Yep, there will be made uh, mistakes made because we're doing this, uh, trying to do it in as shortest amount of time as possible because we've been neglecting to do it for the last 20 years in this province. So uh, we should have minimum requirements of what we're going to do based on how we want to grow. We want to grow, but we don't want to build. We, well, let me rephrase that. We want to accept people, but we don't want to grow. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, what else we got? Oh, <laughs> Justin Trudeau slamming Facebook for removing news from their platforms after he told them you have to pay for the news. So now he's telling them that they, so he, first he told them he's got to pay for it. And now he's telling them that they have to run it. He's demanding that they run it. I demand you pay for it and I demand you run it. Uh, which is just, you know, uh, it's the prime minister and his staff trying to backpedal after Bill C-18, which has done more harm than good. And now he is trying to save face. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, social media doesn't steal stuff. People put it there. And it's usually the authors of. Um, anyway, uh, the, the prime minister's um, shenanigans here are just are just that and are, and, and are silly as he once again has a self-inflicted problem on his hands. Uh, what else we got? Oh, and, you know, I heard this earlier on with Jen's newscast. And you know what? You may not think that this is a big deal, but this is really a big deal. And that is there's enough school bro- uh, bus drivers apparently this year. Like, honestly, can you remember the last year when we had enough school bus drivers? And it's not just in Hamilton. I mean, this has been a problem, you know, in counties across the land. Because it's a tough gig. It's split shift. 
You know, um, it's hard enough driving your own kids around, let alone everybody else's. So, uh, you know, and, and kudos to them. And maybe it's a, maybe maybe there's a big retirement wave going through there now. So, yeah, no problem. Hey, I can drive a school bus. Let's do that. And, and I don't know. I don't know what the reasoning is, but uh, obviously they've got uh, their ducks in a row long before the school uh, school year starts, which is uh, uh, really good. So, uh, yeah, I, I honestly can't remember the, the the last time that we had enough school bus drivers when we started uh, the school year. And again, that's just not in Hamilton. That's in towns uh, across the land. So uh, good news here. All right. Uh, and speaking of uh, Facebook and and now uh after demanding that they do something, yelling at them for not publishing, I guess people are going to social media for um, for their information about wildfires, and um, and and the prime minister is mad at Facebook for not providing that for them. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, remember before the weekend we talked about how uh, the Biden administration had okayed the use of F-16s uh for uh use Ukraine's use in Russia uh, Russia has now reacted to that we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also Trudeau and the cabinet are at a retreat in PEI you can't get a hotel room anywhere on the island the uh cabinet has arrived the biggest in uh, recent years, that's for sure, and growing every day. All right, we talked about how the Prime Minister introduced a bill and basically demanding that uh, Meta or Facebook, what have you, uh, that they pay for content that other people post on their sites, on the social media sites. And uh, Facebook said, we don't do that. That's that's not our business model. Uh, so they just stopped posting the links and that, that other people put up. And now the Prime Minister... I don't know whether this isn't working, uh, change of face or, or, or trying to change direction here, has now said that uh, he is now demanding, after demanding that they pay for content that other people post, they're now demanding that they put that information back because people uh, can't get info from the wildfires or for the wildfires, about the wildfires, which seems just, uh, I don't know, a shot in the dark. Let's bring in uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, uh, University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. Your thoughts on this, Jeff? What, what, and, and the prime minister now, because of the wildfires, demanding that they put the content back. I think this is actually reminding me of what happened after 9-11, where there was everywhere, and I was in the States when this happened, there was a national emergency. I'm not comparing what's going on with the wildfires to 9-11. They're very different. But there are some media similarities, which is to say the public is very concerned, wants to know what's going on, wants more information, how do they get it? I think what's happened, this is just a surmise on my part, is that Meta has overplayed its hand, that it is showing that people in Canada don't need Meta as much as we imagined they did. There is something even better than Meta, and it's called local radio. And what people are able to do, certainly out west um, and up north, is they're able to get the information they need by turning on the radio. That has still become the lifeline for everybody at a time of national emergency in the same way that it was after 
And so I think that that uh, the prime minister may be um, overreacting a bit or overstating the case, but definitely Meta is finding that they're not that essential, that there are many ways in which the public can get information, and it's mostly by turning on the radio. And I think that that's what we're discovering. Yes, it's a serious situation, but the information is getting out there and people know what's happening, what they need to do, and what the government is about to do. We're seeing that now in California with the uh, with the rains and the uh, earthquakes. People are going to local media to get the information they need, and local media is providing it. And I think the same thing is happening in Canada. So I think both Meta and uh, and the government uh, may be overstating their essential role in this, whereas the public is finding the information they need in a traditional way. I never thought about it that way, Jeff, but you bring up a very valid point. I'm questioning, though, which side is overplaying their hand, but then at the end you came around and said they're kind of both overplaying uh, their hands because, uh, you know, you you were saying, commenting that it's not needed as much as everyone thinks, yet um, the prime minister is demanding they put it back, so obviously it must be pretty important. Well, it's important for political reasons that uh, the government wants – uh, meta to behave what it considers to be in a more socially acceptable information environment. Uh, meta is saying this is not our business model, so we're not going to do it. And meanwhile, uh, local radio and local television are finding ways in which they continue to serve the public in essential ways. That's why I think uh, both sides of this have overplayed their hands. Um, they'll have to come to some kind of resolution in the not-too-distant future. But right now, I think we can just calm down, get the information we need from our radios and our televisions. We don't need Meta, and we don't need the federal government to do what they're doing now. But we do need the federal government to get out there and say, here's how we're going to resolve this massive emergency of climate change. Are you surprised, Jeff, that you we've seen in the last couple of weeks um, media companies now start reinforcing their own apps and reinforcing their own websites and advertising those? I think that's great, and that's what should have been done a I know. while ago. <laughs> so um, why didn't I guess it, we? Ta- I guess Jeff, we take the path of least resistance, but why didn't we? Well, I think because we got lazy. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to cast blame in no, aspersions. No, no, no. On anyone, but I think both the public and the media companies said, oh, gosh, we don't need to do as much as we once did. Well, now it's it's proof that this is a technology, an ancient technology called radio and and terrestrial television that is actually really valuable and really provides an important service at a time of national urgency. So I was going to ask you way back when at the beginning of this, is this hurting or helping? What are your thoughts? A bit of both? Um, I think in the long run, it's going to, uh, we're going to wean ourselves off of uh, these big media companies like, uh, like Meta and, and Google and uh, Instagram. We may kind of go away from them for a while. We'll come back to them. But if those big companies are smart, they will figure out a better way to provide the coverage that people need. 
and do it in a way that is useful to the public and not just useful to the shareholders. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, Senior Fellow, Massey College, former Director of Journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Good discussion, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Go local. <laughs> That's it. Keep us all employed. We talked about uh, last week how uh, uh, now it had been okay for Denmark and the Netherlands to uh, donate uh, F-16s, I think there's six going in total, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, these will not be fl- uh, flown by NATO pilots. They'll be flown by uh, those that have been trained in Ukraine to actually fly those. Uh, we remember that if NATO was to come in uh, and do the same sort of thing, that that could theoretically start World War III. That being said, what is Russians, uh, Russia's reaction to this after the announcement that these planes would uh, be arriving. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and here now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. So let's start with that, Arl. What's the difference if NATO comes in with these planes as opposed to they give them to Ukraine, they train up the pilots, and they fly them? If NATO came in directly, that would be... Uh, the alliance basically fighting Russia. Russia uh, is no match for the alliance, but the alliance certainly does not want to get into a direct war. That could raise uh, the possibilities of using nuclear weapons, although uh, even that is unlikely because Vladimir Putin understands that uh, that would be suicide, and he is mostly not suicidal, but the risk would be great. And particularly the Biden administration had been very reluctant to try to provoke Russia in any way. They have slow walked giving armaments to Ukraine. They have uh, blocked the sale of uh, the aircraft for many, many months. We know that Ukraine has been pleading for these aircraft for well over a year. They're only going to start training now. It would take four to six months to train these pilots, uh, perhaps even more time to train the least 800 mechanics that would be required to maintain these planes. It would be a slow process. But in the longer term, as this war continues, this is the last piece that is necessary for Ukraine to be really effective in recapturing the territories that have been illegally occupied by Russia. Because in order to fight a combined arms uh, war, which uh, they will need to to recapture territory now, they need to have uh, aviation. Combined arms, as we know, is a military concept that calls for a combination and synchronization of tanks, infantry, artillery, engineers, and aviation. And this joint capability then allows uh, the military to seize, occupy, and defend, uh, defend terrain. The Ukrainians have been denied the F-16, uh, and uh, this has left a huge gap in their capabilities. Uh, what about Putin's reaction? Isn't he looking at it the same way um, in the sense that uh, does he care who's flying the planes? They're, they're still supplied by, um, you know, those close to NATO or NATO. He does not want to risk a war with NATO either, so he has been remarkably adept at rationalizing defeat after defeat while he makes the most uh, startling and dire threats. His red lines have not meant very much. He made threats when Finland and uh, Sweden uh, were applying for membership to NATO. He made threats about tanks being delivered, about high Mars being delivered. 
about longer range uh, missiles uh, launched from the air were being delivered. So at every turn, he has tried to scare the West, particularly the rather timid Biden administration. He's looking for the wobblies in that administration, as well as in Europe, because this is his best hope. But it hasn't worked so far. It's not likely to work in the future. The question is how well Ukraine can move. In the meantime, they're making small gains on the ground. It's very, very difficult. They had the momentum last, uh, last September, but they were not given the adequate uh, support from the United States in particular. The, administ the administration in Washington certainly is afraid of losing the war in Ukraine, especially as Biden is facing re-election next year, but they seem almost as scared of winning. So Putin would play on that fear. Hmm. How much use are these F-16s? Uh, six initially, uh, how much use will they be? You, you said providing, obviously, cover for what's happening uh, below them. Are they going to have a significant impact? Eventually, there are supposed to be some like 60 of these aircraft. They're not the latest version of the F-16, but they have had a midlife upgrade. So they not only are able to communicate with each other, but they can communicate really well with ground forces of various types. So this is essential for a combined arms operation. So when you have the full contingent of some like 60 aircraft, and they also have a dispersal capacity, so they will be very difficult to hit. They don't just have to fly from fixed bases. They're equipped with parachutes, so they can land actually on uh, straight stretches of highway. They would have a very important impact in the, this kind of combined operation that Ukraine hopes to be able to, uh, to engage in. But it will take quite some time. Uh, this will not occur in the next four to six months. Uh, at the earliest, it would probably be the spring of next year. And so this delay has cost Ukraine the ability to take back more territory faster, and it cost Ukraine a great many lives. When they first began the current offensive, we know that because of a lack of adequate air cover, the tanks, including very fine Western tanks uh, in a small uh, uh, column that uh, the Ukrainians used, were these tanks and armored, uh, armored personnel carriers were very hard hit by Russian aviation, by Russian uh, armored uh, attack helicopters, and Ukraine did not have the aircraft to respond. The F-16s would allow that kind of response, but this should have been done a long time ago. Ukraine... Hmm. ought to have this aircraft now, but for the reluctance of the Biden administration. How will Putin prepare for this? He knows it's coming. He is currently throwing everything he has at Ukraine. So it's not as if uh, it's a matter of now he's really going to be angry and is really going to uh, attack Ukraine because he has had no restraints. There's been no filter. There's been no attempt to avoid any Ukrainian civilian uh, casualties. The best hope that he has is to create divisions among the allies, to create hesitation within elements of the Biden administration that were always too timid to move forward. And short of that, he doesn't have that many, many options. Perhaps the wisest thing for him would be to, to negotiate, but he's not going to do that until it's very, very clear that he will be defeated. 
at that point, he may well negotiate. Uh, as I said, it's remarkable how he has been able to rationalize away all sorts of defeats, whether it is the membership by Finland and soon, hopefully, by Sweden, or the more sophisticated armaments, such as Leopard 2 tanks, uh, Leopard 1 tanks, HIMARS, uh, Storm Shadow missiles from Britain. Uh, and so I think we can count on Vladimir Putin uh, uh, to reach uh, uh, an agreement uh, that would try to save his regime if he feels uh, that uh, uh, he is uh, definitely losing the war. But at the moment, he uh, appears to be convinced that time is on his side because we hear these kind of statements coming from some diplomats and others who would like to negotiate now, would like to have a ceasefire. And if you get a ceasefire right now, that would be a huge victory for him. Mm. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, uh, F-16s on their way to Ukraine. Arl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. The Prime Minister and his cabinet are on a retreat in Prince Edward Island, on Prince Edward Island, and discussing, uh, I guess, their strategy moving forward. Not long ago, a few weeks ago, we saw a cabinet shuffle, a pretty major one. Let's bring in Peter Grip, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Damn, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So far, so good, Peter. Uh, uh, cabinet shuffle a few weeks ago. What's the objective here uh, with this retreat in PEI? Yeah, I mean, every year the cabinet meets at about this time of year, in many ways, to look forward to the budget of next spring. So it's an opportunity for cabinet ministers to begin to put markers on the table of programs that they'd like to see uh, funded at uh, budget time. And, you know, from the point of view of the prime minister, uh, to try and develop uh, a sense of an overall agenda out of these, you know, different projects and programs and sort of signaling what the the major line of uh, the government is going to be going into the fall session. So, uh, you know, it's a time for the cabinet to get together and really come up with a game plan, but also looking, you know, specifically to uh, next uh, year's budget and, and what are the, the programs that need to be funded if the government is to follow through on its program. We're hearing all kinds of uh, chatter regard to affordability and the middle class and housing and, and, and refocus on that. How does a government refocus on things that people have been having troubles with for a while now, uh, especially when they have the shelf life that they have? How do they freshen it up? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, the government in 2015 made a, a big point that they were going to invest in housing as part of their infrastructure plan. And they came up with a national housing strategy, I believe, 2017. And I think in many ways, uh, you know, and that was a 10-year strategy. And I think in many ways, uh, Trudeau and the people around him felt they'd done what they had to do on, on housing. And may explain why, you know, just a month ago, uh, Trudeau was there saying, well, you know, housing isn't really a federal government responsibility. Um, you know, and suddenly a month later, it's all the talk about housing and what's going to be in the housing budget, because I think there's a realization that Canadians are expecting more out of the government. And so at this stage, it's, you know, uh, probably Canadians are ready for something a bit more radical than an investment in infrastructure. And so talking about more specific programs, whether it's about, uh, you know, tying immigration more to attracting uh, and admitting skilled trades uh, people. Uh, whether it's trying to find efficiencies in terms of the planning and delivery of, of new housing projects, 
or you know specific programs to uh, accelerate uh, the adoption of you know more housing. So the idea, for instance, taking a goods and services tax credit off the the building of new purpose-built uh, rental accommodations, uh, you know, would be an example. But I, I think at this stage, you know, the government feels they need to do something about uh, housing policy. They have a few papers uh, that have been prepared that they're paying a lot of close attention to. But I think we'll see a lot of uh, competition uh, from other ideas through the fall from people who are maybe looking for uh, a more aggressive form of, of federal leadership uh, on the housing file. Uh, what about leadership? Is is there any reason to even question whether the prime minister will go into the next election? Um, we were hearing last week there was rumblings within the cabinet. Um, is this a done deal that he will run again, do you think? Well, uh, you know, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but it seems to me like uh, mm. Trudeau is positioning himself to run in the next election there. Hasn't been any signs of, uh, you know, self-doubt or, you know, indications that he wants to pass a torch. And, you know, given where we're at in the electoral cycle, you know, he'd have to make that decision, I think, in the next year to 18 months, if there was going to be time to, to run a leadership campaign and have someone, uh, you know, take the reins and have, have an opportunity to uh, show that they can lead. In fact, you know, it's probably less than 18 months. It would really have to be in the next year that that happens. So. Yeah, I don't think we should expect a change on that file. In the housing file, we do have a new housing minister that, you know, has come forward. But to date, it's really just repeated all the old talking points about what the government is doing. So there, too, you know, the emphasis is on housing. But to date, uh, you know, Sean Fraser, I don't think it's really indicated that uh, he's someone who's uh, ready for change. Maybe, you know, with this cabinet retreat, there'll be a new policy that he's willing to sell. But to date, it's really continuity with what the government was doing before. It seems as if the uh, the government is having a hard time getting out ahead of these problems. It seems that the problems happen and then it's a, a knee-jerk reaction and some sort of program to try to fix it as opposed to being proactive so we don't get into this mess. Is that fair? Is that a fair comment? Well, I mean, I guess it's probably the case that most governments uh, work the same way. <laughs> Things that have been left to fester you know, suddenly explode. And so, you know, housing where Canada really hadn't done much since the mid-1990s, um, you know, is, is faced with a situation where suddenly we have a housing crisis and, and no uh, quick solution. So that's certainly an example of the file where, you know, the government yeah, didn't get out ahead of it, in fact, and, and, you know, is paying the price for the inaction of a number of governments before it. But I think it is true that, you know, when a government is fresh and freshly elected, they've had some time in opposition uh, to be paying attention to what the problems are and and maybe to get a, a greater variety of perspectives about how one can address some of these issues. Whereas when a government's been in place now for, uh, you know, eight years, uh, it gets a bit old and stale. And uh, you get people who are very good at, you know, running the files from day to day, but they've really lost touch of the big picture and have lost touch with where how Canadians are thinking and talking about these issues. And I think it leads to uh, in a sense, a less agile uh, government or one that's uh, less able to anticipate uh, what the public demand is going to be. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet at a retreat in PEI. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Wildfires burning across uh, the country in North America, various spots, uh, whether it's Yukon or uh, in the territories, rather, or uh, British Columbia and such. Uh, obviously, it's been one of those summers where uh, we're, we've experienced a, a high, significant uh, uh, amount of uh, forest fire activity uh, spread across the country. Does this change our headspace? Does it? How do Canadians feel about this sort of thing? Does it heighten their awareness for climate change, or does it make them question whether our strategy is actually doing something? Let's bring in Steve Moss of Leger, Vice President on the West Coast, and here now. Steve, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be on the show. And I know you guys uh, also uh, uh, poll in the United States as well, so it's interesting because we can compare Canadians to U.S. numbers. Um, how are we feeling about where we are this summer in, in a uh, heavy wildfire season? Wow, we've we've polled several times on this, and you've seen some of those releases. One was uh, at the very early stages in June when the fires were first starting. We looked at the impact on travel plans and Canadians, there was something like 15% of Canadians had canceled travel plans early in the summer. We did another read in uh, uh, late June looking at uh, the opinion of Americans and Canadians on weather events and looking at climate change specifically. We then recently polled on the impact of fires. and We found that something like 36% of Canadians were directly impacted by the fires in Canada. And here in BC, as, as we burn right now, uh, it's it's particularly relevant. So Canadians are alarmed and they're they're quite worried. And if you look at uh, climate change has really climbed up the, the public opinion polls to not to the top of the agenda because we still have healthcare and inflation cost mm-hmm. of living as uh, number number one and two. But climate change has made its way back up. If you look at previous years, even pre-COVID, it wasn't it wasn't near the top. It was like five or six on the list. COVID bumped it out for a couple of years. Uh, but to say that it's number three in the minds of Canadians really is telling. It shows that Canadians are concerned they do care. Uh, what about our strategy? Are they questioning what we're doing? It seems that uh, Canadians, uh, climate change, absolutely, we're all in. How much do you need? And, and, and we don't really question this. However, now we're, you know, obviously, you know, we're feeling the pinch. We're, we're getting hit with carbon taxes, yet we're seeing the devastation that we're seeing. Are, are, are Canadians questioning whether we're doing the right thing? Uh, they're using the right approach here, the right strategy. They they do question it. Let's let's as much as uh, we say it's universal. Let's just put a footnote to that that it's not quite universal. So the changes in climate worry about seventy percent of Canadians. There's about twenty percent who say that they don't really care, uh, that they're not worrisome to them. And there's ten percent still to this in this day. Not not, not a huge number, but it's still shocking, is that there isn't changes to climate. That there's ten percent of Canadians who really firmly believe that it doesn't exist. That number goes up to about 20% in Alberta and Manitoba, Saskatchewan. So when we say universally we care, yes, we do, with a little caveat. In fact, it reminds me of uh, when we look at the polls in Canada, USA, that Americans are quite similar to Albertans. So yes, the majority feel that climate change is an issue, but there's about 20% of Americans who also uh, are in that climate change denial category. Uh, are you, are you, what, what are your thoughts when you look at how, what the response is in Canada versus the United States? It's, it's quite dramatic. I, I find, and we poll on a variety of issues from healthcare to economy, to 
uh, crime, uh, travel, and, and so on. And I, I really quite find it amazing that uh, that Americans uh, where they differ. So we do find that there is uh, there is a difference in how they view climate change overall. It's about fifteen points lower as far as the number of people who are concerned. But back to your your earlier question on efficacy and where where the Canadian governments and provincial governments are putting their effort right now, there there is a contention at quite a sizable number that feel it's too late to reverse. Uh, uh, sorry that 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 there's still fifty one percent. Sorry, feel that there's still time to reverse the consequences of time, climate change. But a big number, thirty seven percent, say that they think it's too late, and that number is. Uh, is quite high uh, relative to to the USA. There's fewer who believe that it's uh, not reversible, but then again, there's more that don't believe in climate change in the States. Uh, obviously, we've just spent three years or, or a good portion of the last three years in a global pandemic. Um, you know, <laughs> a quite a trying time for for everybody involved. And now we're getting this. Uh, is this weighing on Canadians? Are there, is there a feeling of hopelessness here? There is. And, you know, we pulled on mental health for even before COVID and tracked this and mental health is a is a situation. But really, uh, at the top of the list for that, mental health is driven by economic influences. So inflationary pressures and just the ability to pay bills that weighs heavily in the minds of Canadians. But there is there is a faction of Canadians, about 10 percent, who say that climate change is impacting their health, uh, sorry, their mental health. And those numbers tend to be higher within that 18 to 34 year old group that they were 18 to 34 year old group really feels like the previous generation has done a disservice to to the country and to the future of the country by, you know, whether it's overpopulation or usage of resources or not having the right policies in place, the youth of our country really do feel a bit disillusioned that we're not, we haven't focused our time and effort and money in the right areas. And now we're we're paying the price. Steve Mossop with us, Leger Vice President on the West Coast, talking about the wildfires obviously burning uh, at most at this point in British Columbia, uh, hearing uh, horror stories about uh, the Okanagan and evacuations and such going there. How does that affect our headspace? What do we think about it? Steve Mossop with us from Leger uh, trying to explain. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, you might remember um, that uh, maybe there's so much stuff going on. This has probably slipped your mind. We don't have an ethics commissioner uh, at this point. It's been about six months since we've had one. Um, I believe he stepped down and then the Trudeau government installed uh, someone else who was a family member of a liberal cabinet minister. That didn't go so well. So um, uh, pulled that person and now it's it's vacant at this time. And when you're considering all the issues surrounding the government, perhaps uh, uh, an ethics commissioner to draw even more attention to them isn't really a priority at this point. Let's bring in Michael Barrett, conservative shadow minister for ethics and accountable government, member of parliament for Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands and Rio Lakes. With us now, Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on. So what happened to the last ethics commissioner? And in your mind, why hasn't this been filled? Uh, well, about uh, six months ago, we had uh, Mario Dion. He was serving as the ethics commissioner, gave the government notice. And uh, for health reasons, he withdrew from the position. Um, as you noted, the government then appointed the sister-in-law of a cabinet minister who had been found guilty of breaking the Ethics Act previously. And so um, that appointee then um, resigned from that acting position, which 
uh, was the right thing to do, given it was uh, an inappropriate uh, appointment on behalf of the government. And look, when when you have multiple ethical breaches by the prime minister, multiple members of his cabinet, um, his parliamentary secretary, um, it, it seems like they've made the decision that it's easier not to follow the rules, just not to have anyone in the office who can investigate them. And this has been confirmed by the Office of the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, who we had at parliamentary committees uh, before the summer recess. And uh, they said that there will be no investigations until a commissioner is appointed. Are they looking for somebody? Are they trying to appoint someone? Well, are they looking and are they trying, I guess, are, um, are two separate questions. Um, hmm. the, before they launched their, their quote-unquote search, they cut the salary by about $110,000. So the person that you usually want for this position is uh, someone who's leaving the federal judiciary, uh, you know, a, a federal court judge or um, a former uh, Senate uh, ethics commissioner or a member of a, a federal uh, tribunal. And um, so now they're saying, well, we're having trouble finding someone. Well, that's because the law is very specific on the type of credentials that the person should have for this independent officer of parliament. But what's within the government's purview to do without changing the law was they were able to cut the salary. And so it's hard attracting candidates to a very high profile job with lots of work with Justin Trudeau's liberal and government uh, liberals in government. Um, and and they've cut uh, cut the salary by a third. So. Um, there is a there is a position posting for it, but I don't think that they're earnest in in trying to find someone. What was the reasoning for uh, discounting the salary? Well, it's not fiscal responsibility because it seems to be the only place that this government <laughs> has uh, yeah. has found a nickel to try and save. Um, they've offered no no rationale and uh, have um, benchmarked um, you know everyone else's salaries against uh, against um, you know whether it's the consumer price index or um, other private sector or public sector indicators. This seems to be the only one that's been cut. And it's uh, frankly a, a position that brings an awful lot of bad news for Justin Trudeau, twice found guilty of breaking ethics laws. Uh, members of his cabinet also found guilty of breaking this law several times. So, um, you know, it, it, it um, is certainly um, bad, uh, bad optics, but also it's bad for Canadians' confidence. They want to know that um, the lawmakers are also subjected to following laws. And when this post is vacant, um, it really undermines people's confidence, Canadians' confidence in, in our parliamentary and our democratic institutions. Is there uh, rules of engagement for this sort of thing? Is there a deadline uh, where this, uh, you know, the position has to be filled or could they just theoretically not fill the position again? I mean, uh, the consequences for them not following the rules come down to what Parliament will allow, and they have a, a confidence and supply agreement with the New Democrats. So um, that that's a really a good question for Jagmeet Singh, how long he'll let this go on for. It's supposed to be six months after they've appointed an interim commissioner. It doesn't say that the interim commissioner needs to serve the full six months, though. So we'd be coming up on their set, the end of their second six months, um, that is six months since they first appointed their interim commissioner in October, um, and uh, you know, and there's no sign that that they've got someone. The, the response from the government is that they'll do it in due course, but um, it looks an awful lot like they're just trying to rag the puck until uh, they get within eyesight of an election, and uh, and then the bad news will be on hold until after that happens.
Uh, could it be they're just too busy? Other priorities, other stuff going on. Too busy working on the public inquiry for election interference. Um, is are they just too too many things going on? Um, you know this this is a government that doesn't seem to be able to walk and chew gum at these at the same time. But they're in fact they're doing neither. So um, we don't have a public inquiry into foreign interference in our democracy when when we've seen evidence of that and even recent alerts. Um, you know, by our, our national intelligence apparatus who's saying that there's meddling by Beijing in, in our democratic institutions, trying to put pressure on elected officials like uh, like MP Michael Chong. Um, they haven't they haven't uh, they haven't initiated that public inquiry. They haven't appointed an ethics commissioner. Their special rapporteur for election interference uh, resigned. Their interim commissioner resigned. Meanwhile, we have a cost of living crisis. And uh, the prime minister just wrapped up a week week of holidays. So I appreciate that, you know, everyone's entitled to some time off and and everybody's quite busy. But I would just like to see evidence that, you know, this government is moving the needle on something. They're not doing it on cost of living. They're not doing it on foreign interference. And they're not doing it on government accountability with leaving this post uh, this post open. So if they're busy, I'd like to know with what. Uh, obviously, the prime minister and the cabinet on a retreat in Prince Edward Island. Uh, is this on the agenda at all? Is this it has you know appointing another ethics commissioner? Is that a priority? I, I you know this morning I um, I read that you know they they'd listed some of the the discussions that they're going to be having. Um, the fact that they've doubled uh, housing prices have doubled under Justin Trudeau. The fact that crime is skyrocketing under Justin Trudeau. These are some of the things they're going to be talking about. Um, uh, violations of the Conflict of Interest Act um, have also skyrocketed under Justin Trudeau, but I didn't see that as listed as any of the items or priorities that he's identified. And his last set of cabinet ministers found themselves um, you know, under investigation by the commissioner and having been found guilty. Uh, and you know, th- we have a new crop of ethics commissioners, all of whom, or uh, of, of cabinet ministers, excuse me, all of whom um, were said to uh, to need remedial ethics training. That was one of the comments of outgoing Commissioner Mario Dion that the hmm. that the Liberal Caucus needed remedial ethics training, and um, they haven't put that on their on their summer homework list either. So obviously, with a new cabinet shuffle just uh, a few weeks ago, even more so a need for this sort of thing just to educate new MPs. Yeah, these we have got we've got ministers who now have um, have real uh, transactional authority. They've got real um, power set out in law. And we've seen before, like with Dominic LeBlanc giving uh, contracts to uh, to family members. We saw with um, with former finance minister uh, Bill Morneau, um, you know, with his involvement with the We Charity scandal and, and a family member who was employed there. Um, this is a, you know, a real concern when we've got, uh, when we have cabinet ministers who are giving preferential treatment to to friends and, and family members and insiders when, you know, it's a really tough time for the overwhelming majority of Canadians. And um, they need to know that the government's first interest is in Canadians and, and not uh, just in looking after those who are closest to them. Michael Barrett with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government. It's been six months and still no ethics commissioner. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yep. You too. Take care. We've talked at length about tent encampments, uh, not only in this city, but in many, right the way across the country, whether big town, small town, city, what have you. Um, many are, are, uh, 
have the same issue that that Hamilton does, and that is homeless that are living in tents uh, in our parks. The uh, city council has come up with sort of rules of engagement and how they're going to manage all of this moving forward. Obviously, the big question is what happens about 90 days from now when the snow starts flying. Um, but, you know, the parks were obviously meant for uh, a, a certain purpose, and one of those in not being a campground. So what happens if something happens, whether somebody gets hurt, a uh, citizen or camper or what have you, uh, is the city liable? And by setting up these situations, does that increase that liability? Let's bring in Brian Simo, partner with Ross and McBride, LLP, and with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, God. Nice talking to you. Good afternoon. So, Brian, now that the, the the city has come up with some sort of rules of engagement for this, does this put them in greater liability if something goes wrong? Yeah, potentially, yes, it does. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. They're, they're already um, exposed. Uh, the fact that they know there's people in these parks that are, that are camping in them, uh, that they've gotten, uh, and I don't blame necessarily the city for this. It's a very challenging issue, but... yeah. Uh, in their own words, they've gotten very lax in the bylaw enforcement rules, uh, permitting people to do an activity that is, according to the bylaws, banned. Um, they're, they're already uh, partially or potentially exposed to liability if there's an incident or something happens. Uh, and once you start, is it difficult to stop? I mean, once you start providing a certain service or a certain uh, leeway in any way, can you reverse that? Yeah, it's, it's a political question as much as a legal one, I think. But it, it, it's challenging. The whole issue is challenging, though, because yeah. as I understand it, they, you know, their their concern about uh, you know going and closing down these encampments is that essentially you're just chasing people from one encampment to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it becomes almost uh, you know a revolving door as people go from place to place. Um, but you know, the real challenge is when we when lawyers we look at liability for things, we look at um, you know, what is the standard of care that somebody owes? And this is largely city property, be it parks, be it open public spaces, like up on, uh, I think it's Strong Street. Um, the, you know, there's a difference in what standard is expected when it's an activity someone is doing that you know about, that you don't necessarily permit, versus when you permit someone to do it, versus when you actively encourage it. And the further you go on that, the higher the standard arguably is. So as the city now allows this uh, and comes out and says that, and as I understand, it may even be providing shelters and tiny homes at certain places for people, um, arguably their standard of care and their exposure to liability is increasing. Uh, and because this is now allowed or permitted in some areas, are there things now that they must provide? Yeah, as I understand it, they're going to be providing uh, things like uh, running water, bathroom facilities uh, in some of these areas, which, um, you know, on a humane level, sounds like a, a great idea. I mean, I've, I've yeah. read stories in the news about, you know, people finding human waste in their yards and, uh, and other issues like that, sanitation issues, which obviously are very problematic. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what actual level they have to give, uh, this is a bit of a... I hate to say it, almost a sociological experiment. I don't know that that's well-defined. Um, I don't know that there's some sort of overarching provincial or federal law that says that, you know, they have to provide proper bathroom spaces. Um, I think they're choosing to in some of these areas, but I don't know that they have to. Uh, and, and you know, the level of what they need to provide is an open question mark as well. 
Uh, would cities be questioning, uh, as soon as you open something like this, then you, then you start to provide services. Are, are you question what serv- are you questioning what services you will provide, what, uh, services you won't provide? And are you having this question about liability with those that represent the city? Are, would they be having these discussions? You know, I, I hope so. Uh, I'm not privy to the council discussions, um, yeah. unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I would hope they're having those discussions. I mean, the city has a, uh, you know, well-staffed legal team with some excellent lawyers on it. I've interacted right. with them professionally, and, and there's some great lawyers there. So I, I certainly uh, expect there's been some communication and, and some conversation. But uh, the city also has insurance that hopefully they've interacted with uh, and spoken to to discuss potential exposure and liabilities if something should happen. I mean, I just, you can just imagine, I picture horror stories where, you know, you're putting up tiny homes for shelter, which, you know, on its face sounds like a great humane things to do. And then there's a fire and three tiny homes, or three tiny homes burned down. Yeah. So who's the hook? You know, like what, what yeah. happens? So there's just a lot of questions and what ifs that can occur that, you know, potentially the city, and that means sometimes ultimately the taxpayer can be on the hook for Brian Simo with us, partner with Ross and McBride LLP in the tent encampments. Is the city liable? Are they covered for that? Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Delegates from across Ontario began descending on London, Ontario uh, yesterday as uh, the Ontario Premier and Cabinet prepared to meet with municipal officials uh, right through the, uh, to the 23rd uh, with the Association of Municipalities of Ontario Conference, which is being held in London. And obviously housing a top priority and giving us uh, the details on what is going on. Colin DeMello is here, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and here now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, Colin, safe to say housing, housing, housing is the agenda? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, one of those conferences that comes at a time when housing is the top issue, not just federally, provincially, municipally. Everyone is seized on the idea of how to make housing more affordable. And, you know, it seems like the common thought here is instead of having provinces or municipalities actually build affordable housing or legislate that housing has to be a certain price point, They've decided that, you know, building as much as possible, increasing the supply will mean the, the, the cost will come down if there's enough supply. So that's what the primary focus has been. And then how to actually get to that goal of building 1.5 million homes by the end of 2031. And we understand the province is providing some incentives for municipalities if they hit certain targets. That's right. The incentive is $1.2 billion over the course of three years. That's what's being set aside in new funding for municipalities. So municipalities have all been given these housing targets, right? This 1.5 million uh, uh, home goal has kind of been divided up by uh, 50. So 50 municipalities have been given these housing targets, uh, you know, the, the least of which is about 1,000 for a municipality. Toronto has to build something like 285,000 over the course of that uh, 10-year period. So in order to get things moving a little bit faster, the province is saying, look, if you start making your goals every single year, so for, for instance, if you've been given a goal of 10,000 homes, you know, divide that by 10 years, it's 1,000 uh, homes each year, if, if you are able to hit that goal, we're going to give you more money. 
The, the question, though, is how much and what does that money actually go towards? This $1.2 billion is for 50 municipalities over three years. So that's $400 million a year uh, split by 50 municipalities. You know, you can very quickly see that that money dwindles into small amounts. At the same time, a lot of municipalities are looking for development charges and for the province to kind of make up for those fees. Development charges are charges that municipalities used to be able to charge directly to builders. And that money went into a pool to you know, build infrastructure that would support those communities that, were, that the developers are putting in. So to build maybe a small park or to build the, uh, the road infrastructure, the you know, utilities that have to connect that community to the main grid. The province did away with those development charges in the fall. And now municipalities are saying, look, if you think this is the answer, this is not it. This $1.2 billion fund isn't going to cover their costs which amount to hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars every year. This is a conversation about money that's going to continue between the municipalities and the Ford government. I remember when the development cost was just a, a, a really early issue several years ago. And, and uh, cities like Toronto, I think, were allowed to hit the uh, at the beginning and the end of the build with these. And now it just seems that everybody's become dependent on this money. So how do you get rid of it now without somebody uh, taking a loss? Um, what about, uh, uh, you talked about the incentives and such. How is this going over? I mean, are you getting the feeling, Colin, that there's some progress being made here, or is it just walking heads? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, a lot of the municipalities said, okay, look, the premier just announced this. We don't really have the details. So, you know, the, the Ford government released some kind of a funding formula, like how they would, you know, maximize the amount of money they could get. So it sounded enticing, but a lot of uh, mayors are saying to me, I, I, just want, I just want to be able to examine and study exactly what this means and how much we could get before being able to make a final calculation. The other question, though, a lot of municipalities seem to be facing is, how do you get developers to actually build the homes when they've been greenlit? So a lot of municipalities, London, uh, let's use London, for example, because that, that's where the conference is in. Uh, London essentially said that they've approved eight thousand units for constructions. The permits are ready for the developers, but the developers haven't actually come to City Hall to claim those permits. It might be a function of the fact that the economy isn't doing so well, or the fact that interest rates are really high, uh, or you know, goods and services and, and uh, building materials are really expensive. For a variety of reasons, developers are not actually acting on the permits once they receive them. So the municipalities are telling the province, you can't blame us because they're saying we're we're fast these projects. Yeah. Let me ask you this though, Colin. Is this just a new problem? Because we're hearing this from various mayors that saying, you know, uh, now because the interest rates are so high and now building materials are so high that you know people are walking away from these things now. But what about the last five years and the time before that and the time before? I mean, it's easy to use today's problems today. If you got a housing shortage, it doesn't matter what the issue is. It's going to be intensified by a shortage. Is this a red herring? And at the end of the day. You know, if you don't like the rules the developers are playing uh, by, you can change the rules, can you not? I mean, are the, are the municipalities not holding the reins here? Uh, to a degree they are, and to a degree they're not. So a lot of the planning and a lot of the red tape at, at City Hall, that's what, uh, you know, the Ford government has been trying to cut down on, right? To make the process from 
conception to construction as, as possible. Oh, I, I think why municipalities are saying this now is they keep getting the blame. The federal government, you heard Justin Trudeau say that he doesn't believe that housing is a federal responsibility. The province has downloaded a lot of the building targets onto the municipalities, saying you need to move faster. But the municipalities are saying we are doing everything we can, but we can't actually con- they, they don't build the housing. We can't convince the developers to actually put the shovel in the ground. So, you know, to a degree, there are a lot of people who can pull a lot of levers. But it also seems to me like we're, we're approaching a bit of a gridlock scenario if you know, interest rates continue to remain high and developers might decide now might not be the right time to start this mega construction project. What is the municipality to do? So some municipalities are starting to talk about ways to, you know, maybe use a stick as opposed to the carrot, right? To maybe say, maybe these permits have a sunset clause. You have to act on them within five years of receiving them. Um, or maybe there would be some some monetary fine if you don't act on it in time. In London, that is an active conversation. I'm, I'm you know, going to guess that a lot of other municipalities are going to start talking about this because they're getting a lot of the blame, but they don't hold the cards because they all say municipalities don't actually build housing. Colin DeMello with us, Global News, Queens Park Bureau Chief. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We certainly know the impact and what we've seen of wildfires across Canada. I mean, this past weekend, uh, anytime you uh, look at any social media or turn on any newscast, all we're hearing and seeing is what has been going on in the territories and in British Columbia as uh, the wildfires continue out there. How is that impacting the economy? How is it impacting our psyche? Um, uh, tourism, just one of the industries that you can think of that uh, is obviously been devastated by this in BC. Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of economics uh, with Toronto Metropolitan University and here now. Eric, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I hope you are as well. So far, so good. What is the impact on something like this when we see what we see and hear what we hear? Uh, how does it affect the economy? Well, it's really bad. Um, but then we are going to get to a, what I call a silver lining, but I use that term loosely. Whenever you have environmental disaster, you have to break up the costs into what economists call either direct costs or indirect costs. And so you kind of alluded to this with one of the indirect costs, but let's just tackle these in order. Um, There's direct costs. There are the costs to actually dealing with the fires, dealing with floods, dealing with the physical damage, right? That's going to be the number one thing, whether we've got to repair buildings or roads or bridges, utilities. Someone's got to rebuild that infrastructure. And that's not even discussing the loss of human life. I'm talking pure loss of property, homes, businesses, personal belongings. It is millions and millions of dollars. Anytime you have to send out um, an emergency response and relief team because they have to have a place to live, they have to have what to eat, they have to have the intelligence and the mindset to work. And then, of course, the part people don't think about are the insurance claims that always, always follow a natural disaster. And those are going to give you really significant payouts. So just to take a breath, those, Scott, are what we call the direct costs anytime there's there's an economic or a um, environmental disaster. 
What about changing public's perception? Does this change buying habits? Does this change people's thoughts on climate change? Does it alter does it alter the economy in that way? Well, sure. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we're going to get to. Let's just run run down the indirect costs because I managed to jot them down today. So you're talking about the disruption of economic activity, right? The businesses that are affected may have to halt operations or operate at some sort of reduced capacity due to damaged infrastructure or the need for repairs. Now, yes, this leads to decreased production and and potential income loss, but you're right. It's also going to change the way people think. There's always going to be a change of perception and a change of preferences. And people and businesses, if they start to do something different, buy somewhere different, order somewhere different, travel somewhere different, well, sometimes that becomes what they do and it becomes normal for them. So you're absolutely right. There's a big change in people's thinking. Some of the and and these, by the way, these apply to the other indirect costs too, is that you can get job losses. And will those jobs ever come back? And what if labor leaves? What if labor says, we don't think we're ever going to be able to work there again, so they're going to leave permanently? What happens? Same with supply chain, same with tourism, as you said, same with the health care costs, and same as the strain on the public services. So this is, I know, a laundry list of really bad things. It seems uh, lately, whether it's a pandemic or forest fires or what have you, we spend most of our time reacting to stuff as opposed to being proactive uh, to these sorts of things, uh, sorts of uh, issues. Will we start to get more proactive? Will we start to plan better for these? You know, I think that's an old story. I think people do plan to some extent, but I hate to use 9-11 as an example, but since most of us were alive that are listening to your show at 9-11. How do you plan for this type of disaster? How do you plan for this type of widespread billions, billions of dollars of damage? And sometimes you just can't. And that's the problem. So as much as I respect all of the people in these industries that put together plans of what to do if a disaster sets in, sometimes, Scott, you know that there's really no way to plan for the unexpected. And the only thing you can expect in things of this size and magnitude are unexpected costs and delays. Uh, you, you alluded to this earlier. I mean, obviously, when we see things like this, it's the obvious things that, that we can see that are taking a hit here. But you talked about insurance claims and the amount of payouts with insurance. How is this going to change things? Well, like any time there are massive payouts, there are massive increases in insurance rates because somebody has to pay that bill. And so you're talking about, again, because the numbers are this significant and this catastrophic, that you're going to see new and higher insurance rates and potentially even insurance on things that people didn't know that they had to insure against. But you can rest assured, even if it creates new avenues of the insurance industry, and that's the silver lining that I was talking about, is sometimes these things create new industry. Part of my, how can you plan for it? Well, if you can't, then sometimes it can create an industry, and that can, in the long run, help out GDP if services and goods get created that weren't there before. But you know what? I think you're asking me short-run questions. Short-run questions are about the people involved. And of course, what we want to do is help those people to get their lives back quickly as possible. But that's going to be millions, if not billions, from the estimates that I'm seeing, Scott. 
Uh, that was my next question. Are there industries that will benefit from this? Just like in a post-pandemic world, there were things that benefited in, in industries that took off. Uh, is this uh, further uh, uh, proof of changing times and that there will be industries that will benefit from this? Absolutely. You know, one of my brother's industries is scrap metal. And I, again, I, I hate to say this. I don't want to make anybody sad who's in their cars. But the scrap metal industry in Southern Ontario went bonkers after 9-11. And mm. it's just one of those things. I'm not giving judgment call. I'm not saying that that is a great thing we should cheer for, but it's a reality. And, and as you said in the top of this discussion, anytime you have structural change, and that's what's going to happen here in terms of people's preferences, business preferences, there's also going to be people that are get jobs, create jobs and create industries because someone's going to have to build these areas back. Someone's going to have to, when this is over, come back and make this inhabitable land again and think about the infrastructure that's going to have to be built. Well, that is labor. That is companies. That's going to be increases to GDP. What you hope doesn't happen in the meantime are that people leave permanently and they have trouble filling those positions. But, you know, we live in an odd time, Scott, and a pretty precarious economy. I have a feeling where jobs are created, people will go. Uh, will this sell more uh, EVs, more uh, climate change geared products? Now, that's a very good question. Um, I don't truly know. I mean, I think that might be a bit of a stretch. I'd like to think that people who bought Jeeps aren't looking at these disaster zones and saying, let's go take the Jeep up for a spin. I mm. think what, what it could do more, though, to your point, is more things like insurance and trying to hedge bets against living in these parts of the world where now have a track record of being somewhat more dangerous than, say, an urban center. Eric Ham with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. How wildfires across this country will or are impacting the economy. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Vince emails us. Not building enough homes to meet our immigration targets is like ordering a small pizza to feed your family reunion. Keep right except to pass.